Our Father, we thank you for the wonderful gift of your Son. May we always remember. We thank you for the wonderful gift of your Word. And may your Spirit, who caused it to be written, give us understanding today. May he give me the words to say. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Open your Bibles, please, to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. We've come to the second major section of Peter's first letter. And as we saw last Sunday, before Peter actually gets into it, dealing with the social conduct of the Christian, he once again sets down markers. You know, he's writing to people that he probably has not met, but he identifies them for their own benefit as to who they are. If you look at verses 11 and 12 of 1 Peter 2, Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. There are four identity markers here that they are dear friends, they are aliens and strangers, they live among the pagans or the Gentiles, and they are slandered as evildoers even though they are doing good. Now, beginning in verse number 13, Peter deals with how Christians, how the church is supposed to act in three different arenas. First of all, the political arena. Secondly, economic. He deals with slaves and masters. And then thirdly, in terms of marital authority, wives submitting to their husbands. And I must say that at this point, we might be, attempted, uh, we might be tempted to avoid to skip over what Peter has to say in these sections and see them as not really applicable to us. So, for example, in the section we'll look at today, he writes about the king. The the ESV has emperor. We don't have a monarchy, so people would say that doesn't apply to us. The second section, which the Lord willing will look at next week, he talks about slaves. We don't have slaves. So then when we get to the section that we can relate to, husbands and wives, we've already dismissed it as like, well, you know, Peter's writing for a different culture, a different time, different people, and it really is not that applicable to us. And particularly, by the way, when he refers to the fact that Sarah called Abraham master. And many wives begin to squirm and say, I'm not going to call my husband master. Uh, and then look back and go, oh, he's talking about emperors and slaves. Oh, this must not apply to us. I find that in this section that the distance between us and Peter sort of, at least in our minds, begins to grow. The reality is that we believe and we affirm what Paul wrote to Timothy, that all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. And therefore, it is something we can learn from. It does apply to us. We just need to do the hard work and see how that happens. Just a word about the structure of this section. And in this, Peter shows himself very much to be uh, Jewish. This is the parallel. It goes A, B, C, B, A. So the first section and the last section are very similar in that they are uh, instructions for everybody. But the second 
part is instruction for slaves. That's a very specific group of people. The fifth or the fourth is instruction for wives. So again, that's very specific. But it is the center section that is the foundation for all of it, and that is the example of the Lord Jesus Christ, which the Lord willing, we will look at on Easter Sunday. What we find is that at the center of this whole discussion is Christ as our example. And yet for all that, people like you know, these wonderful verses in chapter 2, verses 21 to 25. The rest of it, I think people would rather avoid, you know, skip over or merely glance at and let's get on to something else. Um, just a reminder from last week that the context is that... that Peter's writing to people who are aliens and strangers among the Gentiles, which expresses one's status as a non-citizen. That's sort of important because the first section he will talk about is political authority. And if I'm a non-citizen, then what are my political, what are my civic duties as a Christian, as a part of the church and the people of God? Peter writes to these people as though they belong to another country. That though they are here for a short time, they do not have status as citizen. They belong to the kingdom of God. Peter points out that there is, in fact, a big distance between them and their neighbors when it comes to the values of society, the ideals of society, the institutions of society, and yes, even the politics of society. Look, if you would, as I read verses 13 through 17, this opening section. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men, whether to the king, the ESV has emperor, as the supreme authority, or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. Live as free men, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as servants of God. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the brotherhood of believers, fear God, honor the king. If we take these words seriously, and I do, then there are a number of problems that confront us, the number that confronts us here. I would suggest the following problems, and I will try to deal with these in the course of the sermon. The first question is, what is the state that... uh, Peter is writing about here, the king, the governors, the emperor, and all that. Secondly, what does it mean to submit? And I think this is really the crux of the matter for many people. What is freedom? And what is the purpose of freedom? And then finally, in verses 16 and 17, particularly verse 17, we have almost the kata, we have four imperatives, that these are things we are supposed to do. Um, How do we do these four things in light of the earlier issues? Let's look at the issue of the state. In my notes, I initially wrote the Christian and the state, and I've now changed it to the church and the state, because I was instantly reminded of what we've been saying over the past few Sundays, that when we are converted, when we become Christians, we become a part of the family of God. We become a part of the community of faith, the church. So we should not look at this passage merely as me as a citizen and the state, the United States. I should see myself as part of the church on Melrose, as part of the church at large, and then my relationship, our relationship to the state within that context. I think there are at least three problems uh, we face when dealing with this issue. 
First of all, the New Testament says very little about the matter of our relationship to the state. In the Gospels, we have one statement from Jesus in this matter. Give to Caesar what is Caesar and to God what is God's. Uh, this is in response to the question whether or not a good Jew would pay taxes to a Roman emperor. And I, I become more and more convinced as I get older that the response is really misunderstood. That people see this primarily as a political statement, a statement about taxation. That since the emperor's image is on the coin, you have to give it to him. It belongs to him. Remember, Jesus asked whose image is on the coin as the basis of his response. At least the first part of his response. The second part we should see in that light. If Caesar's image is on the coin, give it to Caesar. Where is God's image? We are made in God's image. We bear God's image. So give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Pay your taxes, but give to God what is God's. And what is God's? I am. I bear his image. I belong to God. Um, I think that that's the real focus of that particular encounter. And yet, for all that, that seems to be the only statement we have by Jesus with regard to our political responsibilities. In the epistles, Romans 13 is seen as sort of the statement about the Christian or the church and the state. What Paul says in that passage, in those seven verses, is really simply an extended or expanded version of what we see in our text today. In 1 Timothy 2, the first three verses, Paul tells Timothy that we are to pray for those who are in authority. I think something we need to take to heart more than we do. And then in Titus 3.1, we have a very brief statement that's in line with other instructions. Paul says, remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good. As someone who lives here and now, one could wish that more had been written about the matter. But as we have seen, the Bible is not exhaustive. It is sufficient. It doesn't tell us everything there is to know. It tells us what we need to know. And I'm convinced that even here, in what Peter writes to us, we are told what are our political responsibilities. The second problem we face is that we tend to think of the state as it is in the modern world. And we fail to recognize how it is different from the way things used to be. The word state, by the way, is not found in the Bible. Uh, it's not found in Scripture. Um, but it is the way most people think today. So that if someone is looking at this passage, they say, oh, this is, this is a passage about a Christian citizen's responsibility to the state. And somehow, when we say state, we, a certain image comes to mind, which we then anachronistically throw back to the old time and imagine that that's the way it was back then. What is the state? Or how do people see the state today? This is not a lecture about history or political history, but there are certain things I think should be mentioned. The state, when we speak of it today, is a relatively recent invention or construction. It began in Europe in the 15th century, maybe 1450 up to 1650. And it is a political system based on a form of sovereignty. That is, supreme sovereignty within a territory. You see, even in the Roman Empire, Caesar was considered divine. But if you look at this passage, I mean, Peter understands very much the political system. Caesar is in Rome. The authority is out in the outlying provinces. The governors are the ones who have the authority there. 
Whereas in the modern state, the authority is in the capital and in the executive branch, and that extends throughout a particular territory. Also, we need to understand that the state came about, and it depends on the ability of the state-making elites to make war. As one writer puts it, war made the state, and the state made war. It is primarily about monopolizing violence. It belongs to the state. Thirdly, we should understand that the state is not a product of society. And I think this is the way many of us think that, you know, a bunch, you have a bunch of people together and they're like, you know what, we need a government. We need to get organized. Let's create a state. Well, the modern nation state is actually the reverse. The state, in fact, has created society, not by contract, not by custom, but by sheer power. Within a society, you have many societies. You have families, you have clans, you have neighborhoods. And in the United States, you have counties and you have states. But you also have youth organizations. You have churches. You have civic organizations. You have many societies within the state. But the state says, we're number one and we trump all other allegiances. Lastly, there is a common belief that it is the responsibility of the church to make us happy. That is the responsibility of the state to make us happy. That the common good, that's the duty of the state. And so we look to the state. If I'm retired and I don't have a lot of money, I'll look to the state. Uh, whatever I need, the state will take care of me. Um, I don't agree. I don't think this is a biblical view. The nation state may present itself as a way of reconciling the many into one. Here in the United States, e pluribus unum, out of the many, one. And therefore, it is seen as serving the common good. If you take this view, then the state becomes messianic. And we end up realizing, whether we realize it or not, giving it almost unlimited authority in all areas of life. Okay, why this little political history lesson? I think that when many people of our generation read this text, several things happen which are not good. The first is that they believe it has little or no application to them because we don't live in a structure with absolute power. Emperor, we don't have a divine emperor. So what Peter's writing about has little to say to us. Secondly, they may read this and say, oh, our poor brothers and sisters in the first century to whom Peter's writing, um, he really put a hard burden on them. How could Peter write to people saying you need to honor Nero when we know historically that Nero was a monster? And boy, what a burden Peter put on his readers. I think many people today, many Christians today, fail to realize the almost absolute power that exists in our system today. Our state structure today requires, no, it demands allegiance that will trump all other allegiances. And if you think about it, almost all areas of life in this country are under some form of legislation. And lastly, I think people fail to recognize that they have embraced and they continue to embrace the notion that the state should have such power. Let me just give you a couple of examples. Sometime after 9-11, someone wrote a piece based on interviews of Muslims here in the United States. 
in which those interviewed said, listen, I am a Muslim first and an American second. And many people were upset by this. How can you trust these people? They say that their religion comes before the state. Well, wait, are we Christians first and then Americans? Or have we allowed our allegiance to the state to trump our allegiance to Christ? As I asked in the series last year when we looked at just war, what is the basis of your identity, your baptism or your passport? Which allegiance trumps the other? Is it your passport that's more important or your baptism? Just last week, the mayor of New York, made, New York City made the announcement blocking food donations to all government-run facilities that serve the city's homeless. The Department of Homeless Services recently started reinforcing or enforcing new nutritional rules for food served at city shelters. Since DHS, that is uh, Department of Homeless Services, can't assess the nutritional content of donated food, shelters have to turn away good Samaritans. That is to say, the state will trump anything you want to do. You want to help somebody in need? I'm sorry, it doesn't meet the state's legislated criteria. Now, I'm not here to debate the rightness or the wrongness of such a decision. I merely want to point out that the authority the state has taken or has been given is almost over all areas of life. And in many cases, I think we gladly give this authority to the state. We imagine that without the state, we would not have the protection that we need. So, in fact, we need McDonald's to tell us the nutritional content of what we're buying from them because we might be eating junk food. We might be eating something that's bad for us. And, and how would we know that without the nutritional content? And so there the state becomes this messianic entity to whom we bow and say, you have the authority. And no one has done this poll, and I, I would shudder to think the results, if churches throughout this country were asked, to whom do you give your first allegiance? Would it be to Christ or would it be to the state? We need to understand where we are in place and time so that we can see that what Peter writes absolutely does apply to us. The third problem here is that the command to submit smacks of passivity, that is, Christians in the political arena were to be passive, it smacks of withdrawal from the political arena, or simply man maintaining the status quo. That is, well, whoever's in power, we're supposed to support them, and we're supposed to honor them, and, and submit to whatever they have to say. If you look at verse number 13, it says, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men. Seems pretty clear. Well, this leads us to the second problem. The first was the matter of the state. The second is the word or the command to submit. This is a word we find throughout this passage. It's here in verse 13. I would suggest that we can also supply it for verse number 14. Submit to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong, to commend those who do right. And then verse 18, slaves, submit yourselves to your masters with all respect. And then chapter 3, verse 1, wives, in the same way, be submissive to your husbands. And then verse 5, for this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to make themselves beautiful. They were submissive to their own husbands. 
You know, the notion of commanding a slave to submit seems both unnecessary as well as cruel for Peter to write. Peter, what do you think I'm going to do? I'm a slave. Of course I'm going to submit. It is almost as though he's rubbing their noses in it. And then for a wife to submit, today, women might say, I'm not doing that. But in the first century, women did not have that choice. Whether in a Gentile setting or a Jewish setting, a woman was oftentimes seen as property and her husband was seen as having almost absolute authority. Not the state, her husband. The famous in Latin, pater familias. The head of the household had absolute authority and had the right to kill people in his household if he wanted. That's the authority that he had. So when we read this passage, there's real discomfort here. And when it comes to the matter of political authority, the command to submit to every authority instituted among men, again, it smacks of, I'm just supposed to give in. I'm to be passive. I'm not to be involved. I simply am to maintain the status quo. Which means that Christians, the church, is not to be involved in politics. Um, Okay, that could be a series in itself. Um, We're not going to go there. I just would limit myself to three points. First of all, what does it mean to submit? This, in a sense, is the heart of the matter. It's the heart of this passage. Is submission passive or can it, in fact, be active? How you answer that question makes all the difference in how you will read this passage. One commentator says that submitting literally means placing oneself below another person out of respect that is expressed in obedience appropriate to the relationship. It may be compulsory or voluntary. I think that's a bit simplistic. We've seen this before as we've gone through scripture, that oftentimes if you look at the opposite of a word, it will help you have a better grasp of the word that you're looking at. If I say the word submit, most people think, well, the opposite of that is to rebel. So as Christians, we are not to rebel, but we are in fact to submit. This, however, is not the word that Peter chooses to use in Greek. Rather, he chooses a word that is the opposite of withdraw. The opposite is withdraw, which means that submit is, means to engage. It is not passive. It isn't me just simply folding my hands and sitting there and maintaining the status quo. Rather than withdrawing from society, I am to find my place in society and I am to occupy that place responsibly. Resignation is not an option for the Christian. So it's not a question of embracing the status quo or withdrawing from the political arena. Rather, it is a question of finding where I'm supposed to be and what God has called me to do in society. By the way, it's hinted at here in verse number 13. Every authority instituted among men. Ask yourself, who instituted them? You'll notice the imperative, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake. For the Lord's sake, to every authority instituted among men. Every authority instituted by men, we are to submit for the Lord's sake. We are to do so as free men and we are to do so as servants of God. What is his point? Our submission is not to be absolute. Our submission, first of all, is to be to the one who is Lord. 
That is not Caesar. That's not the emperor or the king or today the United States of America. As we find in Paul's writings, so we do in Peter's as well, that whenever he writes Lord, he usually is referring to Jesus Christ. We have no problem with that. But we don't live in the first century. We don't live in the Roman Empire. In the Roman Empire, there was one Lord. That was Caesar. And when people burned incense to worship Caesar, they said, Caesar is Lord. And when Peter says the Lord Jesus Christ, he in fact is saying something that is uh, politically dangerous. He's being quite subversive. By the way, if you look at verse number three of chapter one, you'll notice that he says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Just bear with me. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You'll notice that at the end of the verse, he says Jesus Christ, but at the beginning, he says Lord Jesus Christ. I think he chose his words carefully. He wants the readers to know that Jesus is Lord. He doesn't have to use it every time, but he's not going to not use it simply because everyone says that Caesar is Lord. So we are to submit ourselves for the Lord's sake as free men and as servants of God. And I would argue that this is an active submitting. This is an active engaging in our society. I can't help but think of the example of the Virgin Mary, that when Gabriel appeared to her, the message to her was not a command. It remained for Mary to consent to the consequences of the divine offer. I've said this before, I want to say it very carefully. God would not have raped Mary. That is, he would not have caused her to become pregnant against her will. Mary had to give her consent. And she gives her consent in faith, risking all, as we've seen, her relationship with her fiancé Joseph, her reputation in the community, public disgrace, even her life. She could have been stoned to death for being involved in sexual immorality. But Mary says, I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. There's no resignation. There's no fatalism. There is an active submitting, an active obedience. There is, however, another example for us to follow. It is the example of Jesus. And if you look at verses 21 through 23, this is what we see. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example. Okay, there he is. He is our, exa- our example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted him to himself, to him who judges justly. If we're not careful, and in light of the word submitting, and we think in terms of you know, not rebelling, but you know, giving in, we might read this, by the way, as Jesus being resigned, as though he just sort of stood there with his hands together and then let them do to him whatever he wanted. We might read verse number 23 as sheer passivity. He did not retaliate. He, did, he made no threats. That's true. But he did do something, didn't he? 
He entrusted himself to him who judges justly. And I would argue this means this is not mere passivity. Jesus actively submitted himself to the will of the Father. We certainly see this in the struggle in the Garden of Gethsemane. This is not passivity. This is Jesus engaged in prayer and submitting actively to what God wants him to do. The third thing I would just say with regard to submitting is that the call to love trumps all things. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. We are to show our love for God by obeying his commandments. And we are never excused from the command to love our neighbor as ourselves. Never. I find it fascinating that in Romans 13, this crucial passage on the citizen, the Christian citizen's responsibility to the state, after verse number 7, he continues, Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For he who loves his fellow man has fulfilled the law. The commandments do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet. And whatever other commandment there may be are summed up in this one rule. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to its neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. This means, since I am never excused from loving my neighbor, the time may come when I will not submit to those in authority because what they want me to do means that I cannot love my neighbor. That somehow it says, you will not help those in need. You will not share with those who are in need. Because I am a servant of God, before I am the servant of the state, because I am a free man in Christ, well, this leads us to the third problematic area. What is freedom? What does it mean to be free? I've spoken about this a great deal in the series we did uh, in James and then at the two weddings that we've had in the last two years. In the world we live in today, and particularly in this society, freedom is seen as having the highest value, as being the greatest virtue. And freedom is seen as the absence of restraint, and it is the quantity of personal choice. Freedom in our world, in our society, can be defined as freedom from obligation. Okay, well, if that's freedom, then what about verse number 13, in which we are to submit? Doesn't that take away my freedom? Freedom is not, in fact, freedom from obligation. It is the freedom, the opportunity to give expression to who I am as one made in God's image. To be free is to realize your inmost nature, to give fullest expression to it. And it fits very much in with the word submit. Engage. I'm made in God's image. This is how God made me. What am I supposed to do? That is freedom. And as one who is free in Christ, that is what I'm supposed to do. As I've said before, the simple act of choosing is not freedom. Choosing well is freedom. Freedom is an act toward an end. And as I submit, as someone who is free in Christ, someone who has freedom, I'm also the servant of God, and I'm under authority in the state. Um, I need to choose well. 
what is the right thing to do as I engage in everyday life. In our world, freedom is a choice. What is chosen seems to be secondary, but it's really not realistic. Um, it's one of my pet peeves, if you'll let me digress for a minute here. Um, I'm not opposed to people protesting certain things. I'm not opposed to people standing up for something. What really upsets me is when people then get upset because they suffer as a result of what they've done. So that if they pick it and they're not supposed to pick it and then they're handcuffed and then they say the handcuffs are too tight. Well, I'm sorry. I, what did you think was going to happen? People want to be able to protest and do whatever. They want the freedom to do whatever they want and there not be any consequences. We live in a time where people want no boundaries or no rules. Um, that's not the case. We are to choose and we are to choose well. And how do we choose well? It is, as James puts it, in the perfect law of liberty. The call to love, the first two great commandments, is not a rule or a commandment alone. It is, in fact, an expressing of who we are. God is love. I made in God's image. Therefore, I am called, yes, even commanded to love. I'm to love my neighbor as myself. So it is the law of freedom where we learn to live. Well, is this what Peter has in mind? There seems to be a paradox here in this passage because we are referred to as both free and servants. That may not seem strange to us, but in Peter's world, there were two classes of people. Society was divided into two groups. You had those who were free and those who were slaves. And then you had various hierarchies within that, but you had two classes of people. And you couldn't be both. You're either free or you're slave. But in fact, Peter refers to his readers as both. By the way, his use of freedom and slavery, we saw this in chapter 1, um, it very much recalls the story of the Exodus. That the children of Israel who were enslaved are then set free and given the law of God by which they are to live their lives. If you look at chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed. That redeemed is a very Jewish word from the Old Testament. From the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers. But with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect, like the Passover lamb. It's a very Old Testament language here. But what is the purpose of freedom? Why are we given our freedom? It's not so we can do whatever we want. Redemption has the purpose of service. This is what we were made for. So submission and freedom are not contradictory ideas. We are to find our place in society. We are to love our neighbor as ourselves. We are to obey and live a life of service. First as a free person and a slave of Christ. And then as a member of society. If you look at verse 15 back in chapter 2. For it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. What does Peter mean by this phrase, doing good? I think it certainly has a connection with the previous verse, verse 14. The governors who were sent by him to punish those who do wrong and commend those who do right. As well as what follows, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. 
We are called to live lives of obedience, first of all as servants of God, and then as those who submit to authority as we engage in society. In this light, Paul, or I'm sorry, Peter names four expectations of those who do good. And this is what we find in the imperatives. Before we get to this, uh, verse number 17, I would just remind you, when earlier in the series we saw that the first part of his book, I think up to verse number 12 of chapter 1, Paul, uh, Peter used the indicative. He kept making statements. From verse 13 on, he uses the imperative. He's giving instructions, he's giving commands. So we shouldn't be surprised here at verse number 17 that we find four of them, four imperatives. I, I must tell you that at this point, I prefer the English Standard Version, the ESV, to the NIV. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. You know, on the face of it, this doesn't seem, you know, it's, they seem familiar enough, they seem harmless enough, almost generic in nature. It's almost sort of like, be nice. I mean, if, if you would make a condensed Reader's Digest version of this verse, you might simply say, just be nice people. This is not the case. If I were to ask you today, which of these four imperatives would have been the most radical in Peter's day? What would have been your answer? Well, there is the matter of loving the brotherhood of believers. We saw that in chapter 1, verse 22. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that you have sincere love for your brothers, love one another deeply from the heart. There's a certain radical nature to this, that you come into a congregation, these are people who are your brothers and sisters, and we are to love one another. It's important enough, but perhaps not that radical. Fearing God. Well, that's very Old Testament, the beginning of the, you know, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, so we know that. Um, what about honor the king? Okay, now we're starting, now we're starting to get out on, on thinner ice. Because if I fear God, that means I am not to fear the king or the emperor. I am to honor him. I am to honor the state. But I'm not to fear the state. Reverent fear belongs to God alone. Peter said as much in chapter 1, verse 17. Since you call on the Father who judges each man's work impartially, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. Not fear of the state, not fear of the emperor, but fear of God. But just because I'm not to fear the state or the emperor does not mean I'm not to honor and respect them. As Paul wrote in Romans 13, Give everyone what you owe him. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. But at this point, one might be wondering, and if you're reading from a particular angle, you might think that Peter's opting for maintaining the status quo. Telling Christians, don't get involved in politics, that has nothing to do with you. We're out of here, we're going to heaven, we don't need to worry about society. You know, go to church and do what you're supposed to do at church, but, but just don't worry about those things. That would be a serious mistake. It is in the first imperative here in verse number 17 that Peter flattens the status pyramid of the Roman world. 
in which you had slaves at the bottom, you had the emperor at the top, and then you had the nobility, and then the vast majority of workers in, this, in that society. And what does Peter say at the beginning of this verse? Honor everyone. Excuse me? I understand at the end of the verse you say to honor the emperor. That I get. But now you're saying I'm to honor everyone? I'm to show the same respect for a slave that I am for the emperor? That I'm to show respect for every human being just as I am for the emperor? Yes. Yes, you are. Because that person too has been made in the image of the creator. And you're to recognize that. In a society that saw slaves as property and as less than human, as a Christian, I have to say, I do not agree. I will not submit. I will not treat this person as though they are mere property, as though they're an animal or less than an animal. I will honor this person, even though society says he's just a piece of property. And here I think we begin to get a hint, hopefully, that what Peter is saying in this passage is not status quo. It is, in fact, is quite radical that as Christians we are to engage in our society and we are to love our neighbors as ourselves. I am to recognize all humans as my neighbor. I am to honor them and to love them. And in doing so, and in rejecting the view of society, I'm not free to dishonor the emperor or, or any political structure to say, well, you know, our political structure is oppressive, therefore I will not honor it, I will not obey it in other areas. No, I, I don't have that freedom. I'm also not free to say, well, I'm going to withdraw from society. And I'm also free, I'm not free to say, I'm just going to be passive. Just go with the flow. Because anyway, this, you know, we're aliens and strangers. We're going to be out of here pretty soon. We're going to heaven. So just, you know, just try to go along, get along, and, and, and don't rock the boat. That's not what Peter is saying. As those who belong to Christ, our call is to love our neighbors ourselves. Again, I, I think we're so familiar with this, this doesn't sound that radical. But it really is without trying to make you feel guilty. Um, just stop and think a minute. The people who live next door to you, do you love them? Okay, now we can talk about the radical nature of loving your neighbor. Because it's not as easy. We pay lip service to it, but in fact, it is a very difficult thing to do. Okay, as we come to the end of this sermon, as we end this study, I think we have to ask ourselves, what is the basis for the application? In other words, why should we do what Peter says? He does use the imperative. He's telling us what to do. He's instructing us. What do we do? Why should we do it? Well, living when and where we do, I think the temptation is very strong for us to see this as primarily pragmatic and result-oriented. That if you do what Peter says, things will go well with you. You won't be persecuted. Don't upset the apple cart. Don't rock the boat. Just sort of go along and just submit to those in authority. That if you obey those who are in authority, you will avoid being punished. 
You might even get a commendation. You might be commended by those in authority. And you will silence the talk of foolish men. That, I think, is that's the one that trips us up. Because we think Peter is saying, if you're good, then people won't be able to say bad things about you. You'll silence them. Uh, Trust me, that's not the case. Um, Foolish people will say foolish things no matter what you do. Okay. So it's not pragmatism. It's not because we're looking for particular results. We are to do what Peter says because we are to be obedient to God. It is God's will. We are servants of God. For the Lord's sake, this is what we are supposed to do. Now, the application in your own particular case, that's something, by God's grace, you have to work out. But what I would tell you as your pastor is you don't have the freedom to be passive and to be fatalistic and to say, I'm not going to be engaged in the political arena. God has put us where we are. He has given us the gifts that we have. And where we are, we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. And that is to be done through the exercise of our gifts, our vocations. We are to show the love of God to those around us. And the time may come when we will say to those in authority, no, what you have suggested is wrong. What you are commanding, what you're ordering is wrong. I will, in fact, help somebody who is in need. That person may be seen as a political refugee. They may be seen as a political subversive. But if they are my neighbor and they are in need of help, I will help them. There's the famous statement uh, from some German pastor in Nazi Germany where he talks about the fact that you know when they came and they got the Jews I didn't say anything and then they came and got my neighbors I didn't say anything and they came and they got the Catholics I didn't say anything and then they came and got me yeah I mean we are to love our neighbors ourselves and we're not simply saying that's, that's us just us we are to love our neighbor and to exercise our gift and sometimes it may mean saying to the state No, you are wrong. We will not obey you because we have an allegiance that is higher than our allegiance to you, our allegiance to God. Let's pray together. Father, it would be much simpler if we were simply to withdraw, to be fatalistic, just go with the status quo. This is not what you've called us to. Certainly generations of your people have taken that road. But we can't. We know better by your grace that you've called us to honor everyone, to love our neighbor, and yes, to honor those who are in authority. That before our citizenship in this country comes our citizenship in heaven. We belong to you first and foremost. Help us to think these things through, to work them through. It's not an easy thing. By your grace and your spirit, may we come to see what it is you've called each and every one of us to do in our society. I do thank you for this letter. 
for the Apostle Peter who wrote it, for our brothers and sisters who first received it, whose lives were far more difficult than ours. And yet, they had the same responsibility as we do, as your people, to obey you. I thank you that we could gather today to worship you. We hear the rain outside, but we thank you for it. We ask that you would protect us as each of us goes to our respective homes. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.